Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. All right, folks, we're back on track in the book. Now, surely you're caught up reading. You've had a couple of weeks extra here to get you up into the promised land through the book of Joshua. And and by the way, if you're our guest, we are going through the Bible this year. Uh, We started back in September. We're asking our people to read with us. We're trying to pull a sermon out of some of these books and and, um, and read with us. So today we're going to look at the book of Judges and Ruth. Fortunately, you don't have a ton of reading this week, so you can read Judges, and then you can read the book of Ruth. Ruth only has 84 verses, so I know you can get through that. But today I want to preach out of Ruth, but I want to first mention a few things about the book of Judges. Now, when you hear the word judges, you probably think of those guys in the long black robes, those people in the long black robes that are in the courtroom. But that's not these judges. The word judges in the Hebrew means to defend and to deliver. Sometimes it means to avenge or to punish. It's interesting that when you get to chapter 3 and verse 9, one of them's called a savior, also in verse 15 of chapter 3. But you can basically break down Judges in three parts. The first two chapters sort of deal with apathy. They show a few battles with the enemies, and six times in those two chapters, they disobey God and do not get rid of the Canaanites. They don't run them out of the land. And as a result of that, the Canaanites are always trouble for them. They're always giving them all kinds of grief, and then they're a constant source of temptation to idolatry and immorality. And the picture of compromise is always that way. If you tolerate the enemy, eventually you're going to admire the enemy, and then eventually you're going to imitate the enemy. And that's how it works. If you you don't get rid of it, then you wind up imitating it. There's also, in those first two chapters, a report of the terrible condition of the people who had to have judges come and to deliver them. And chapter two gives an outline of the book, and really the book of human history. One of the common phrases that you're going to see in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And really, chapters 3 through 16, there are seven different times when people turn their back on God. God allowed other countries to take them over and to oppress them. And then they would pray to God, who would then send a judge, a deliverer. And then they would, for a period of time, they would turn their eyes upon God and then the next generation would come along and they would not know God or they would not follow God and you see the cycle. And and in those chapters 3 through 16, there's seven of those cycles. Turn your back on God. Judgment comes. Repent, ask God to help. He delivers with a judge. And then they do it all over again. 
the apostasy in, in part two. And then in chapter 17 to 21 of Judges, you find the corruption in the religious life of Israel. You find corruption in the moral life. And believe it or not, you find corruption in the political life. Aren't you glad we don't have any of that? Now you can see a picture of Jesus there. Because some of these judges are warrior kings. Some of the judges are like one of the judges is, is a priest. It's in the first Samuel. And one of the judges is a prophet, which is Samuel. Actually, the judges spills over into first Samuel because Eli and Samuel are considered judges, pre-kings in Israel. But you find, you find the type there. But what I, I want to move to the book of Ruth now, and I want to first read the first verse of the book of the Ruth, or at least the first half. Notice it says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. What I want you to first know that Ruth occurs during the time of the judges. And even though it was a dark period in Israel's history, you still find God at work. And aren't you glad to know that no matter how dark it gets in a nation, that God always has a people God always is at work in somebody's heart. Even though in generalities it was a dark period in Israel history, God's still working. And here's a prime example, and this is one of the most beautiful pictures of redemption that's in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not gonna read all of this passage to you and then preach. I wanna read it as we come to it. And I want to first talk about the book of Ruth. It's, there's, like I said, only 84 verses, but it's one of the most powerful stories and powerful pictures of redemption in all of the Bible. If, if it were a, a romantic novel today, it is a romantic story. And if it were a romantic novel today, it might be advertised as how one woman found happiness in the arms of her second husband. But it's much more than a picture of love and marriage. It's a picture of how much our Redeemer loves us. And in order for you to get the whole picture, let me give you a synopsis of Ruth. The story begins by an Israelite man by the name of Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and they had two sons. And during the time of famine, they went to the country of Moab. Now, Moab was a, a pagan country, and they, I don't know how long they intended to stay, but they wound up staying there, and the two sons married two Moabite women. Now, after a period of time, Elimelech died. That's Naomi's husband died. And also their two sons died, which left two daughters-in-law, Moabite women. One of them's name was Orpah. The other one was Ruth. Naomi, whose name means pleasantness, was anything but pleasant after all this happened. You know, it's amazing how people can can think God's turned their back on them. In fact, in chapter one, she even uses that phrase, um, 
I've, I've forgotten the phrase that she uses, but it's, it's basically that the Lord has done harshly to me. And you can tell that she is bitter. Well, she decides to go back to Israel because she's heard that God has blessed that country and that there's plenty to eat. And she tells her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, you go back to your families and you go back to your gods, which is horrible advice. Orpah does that. Orpah goes back to her parents and to her gods, little g, gods, pagan gods. Ruth says, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. And, and so Naomi and Ruth go back to Israel. And they don't have anything. And they are beggars, basically. They have to beg for food. Instead, Ruth goes out to the field, and, and there's a farmer by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is a wealthy farmer, and he sees Ruth gleaning. And what that means is, after they've harvested the wheat, the poor could go out, and sometimes in the corners, and sometimes what was left, and they could pick up some for themselves. There wasn't much left. But, but Boaz was so impressed with Ruth that he decided, he told his workers, leave more grain out there for her. Well, Naomi, after a while, realized that Boaz was a relative of her dead husband, which qualified him to be a kinsman redeemer. If Ruth married Boaz, they could legally claim the land that formerly belonged to Elimelech, and she would be married to Boaz. And, and so Naomi used her matchmaking skills and got Ruth, now I'm paraphrasing this, got Ruth to propose to Boaz. Boaz, Ruth basically asked Boaz to marry her. And Boaz said, absolutely. But there was a problem because there was another relative who was closer in kin than Boaz was to Elimelech who had died. And so he had first dibs. <laughs> he had first chance to redeem the land. And Boaz went and talked to him. And the relative wanted the property and wanted to buy it, but he didn't want the wife that came along with it. So he said, no thanks, you can marry uh, Ruth. And that's exactly what Boaz did. Now, that's a synopsis of the book of Ruth. Now I want us to focus in a little bit closer. And I want you to see the beautiful, beautiful picture of redemption. I've already mentioned the first thing I want you to notice, and that is the request, the request for redemption. Now look in verse, excuse me, chapter three, verse nine. And Boaz said, who are you? And so she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, rather poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. 
So she lay at his feet until morning, and he arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then he went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, and she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now, if you don't understand Jewish customs, you're going to miss on the beauty of this entire account. Sometimes we don't understand other things, do we? Reminds me of the time when the Pope decided to require that all the Jews leave the city of Rome. Now, this didn't really happen. This is a joke, okay? Okay, she woke up and heard me say that. But the Pope decided to force the Jews out of Rome unless one of the Jewish men could win a religious debate with him. Well, the small Jewish community didn't have a rabbi, so they sent one of their older men. The Pope did not speak Hebrew, and the Jewish man did not speak Latin, so they couldn't understand each other, so they decided to use sign language. Well, the Pope started by raising three fingers. And the Jewish man held up one finger. Well, the Pope then waved his finger in a circle in the air. The Jewish man pointed down to the ground. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a goblet of wine. The Jewish man pulled out an apple from his cloak. Well, the Pope stood up and said to his cardinals, I give up. This man is too smart. When I held up three fingers to tell him about the Trinity, he held up one finger to remind me there's only one God. And then when I waved my finger to tell him that God is all around us, he pointed to the ground to remind me that God is also right here. And when I pulled out the communion elements to show that God forgives our sin, he pulled out an apple to remind me that we're all sinners because of Adam and Eve. The Jews can stay. Well, when the Jewish man returned to his small group, they asked him what happened. And he said, I'm not sure, but the Pope held up three fingers. I think he was saying we had three days to pack up and leave, so I told him not one of us was leaving. And he waved his finger around to tell me that they were going to round us all up, and I pointed to the ground and said, we're staying right here. And they said, well, what happened next? And the Jewish man said, well, he pulled out his lunch, so I pulled out mine. Neither one of them understood one another. And so I want you to understand really what's going on here because it's going to help you see redemption because you've got to understand two obscure Jewish laws before you can really appreciate the story. And you've already read them because they're in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And you may not have even noticed it when you read them. But the first law is the law of Goel. Goel is a Hebrew word that means kinsman redeemer, and it's in Leviticus 25, 23 to 25. The Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is Goel. Now, here's what Leviticus 25, 23 to 25 says. 
God said, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative, Goel, is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. Every 50 years, there was a year called Jubilee, and all the land reverted back to the original family, and families could maintain land that was given to them by God. But imagine you're an Israelite with a family farm, and, it, and it's 40 years to the next Jubilee. And you suffer a bad crop and you can no longer feed your family or buy more seed. So you have an option to sell your property and then you become like a sharecropper or worse yet, the new owner of the land could throw you off the property. So imagine you've been slaving away for years as a sharecropper on your own former property. It's not yours now, but it was your former property. But you've got a rich uncle in another city and you write him a letter about how bad life is and you ask him to be your Goel, your kinsman redeemer. And for a while you don't hear anything back and then one day you wipe sweat from your eyes and you see your rich uncle drive up or ride up on his Mercedes camel and he's got his checkbook out. And you got a big smile on your face because you know that he's coming to be your Goel, your redeemer. Well, that's about the redemption of property, but later in Leviticus 25, it talks about how an Israelite might be so poor that they sell themselves into slavery. So imagine you become a slave and you write that same rich uncle and imagine the joy in your heart when he comes and he purchases your life and sets you free from slavery. So that's the law of the goel. It applied to redeeming a person as well as property. But it had to be kinfolks that did it to keep it in the family. Now the second law that's obscure is in Deuteronomy 25, and it's the law of leveret marriage, the next of kin. It made provisions for a dead man's name to live on in Israel's history. In fact, you may think it was strange that Ruth asked Boaz to marry her, but here's the explanation. I'm reading out of the New International Version translation of Deuteronomy 25. Listen to what it says. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders 
take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family's line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, you may think that a woman, a Jewish woman, had no authority, but a widow had the choice to remain unmarried or she could ask one of his, his, her husband's brothers to marry her, and if he refused, she had the recourse to shame him in front of the entire village. This law applied to brothers, but if there was no living brother, it could go to another relative. And so... Henceforth, the law applied to Boaz because he was a relative of Elimelech. We don't know if he was a cousin or what, but we do know that there was one other relative closer in line than Boaz. So, you understand the law of the kinsman redeemer for property and people, and then you understand the law of leveret marriage to keep the family line going. Now, with that in mind, let's go back and talk about the kinsman redeemer. There are requirements of a kinsman redeemer. In verse 12 of chapter 3, Boaz said, It is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Now, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all of that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Milan's from the hand of Naomi. Those are the two sons, by the way. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Milan, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are my witnesses this day. So what are the requirements of a kinsman redeemer? The first one is they're required to have a relationship to redeem. And I've already read out of chapter two, or I can read to you out of chapter two, verse one, that 
where it says there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And then in chapter 20 of verse two, then Naomi said to her daughter, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. You were required to have a relationship, kin, kinfolks to redeem. The second requirement, you had to have the resources to redeem. And I just read to you out of chapter two, verse one, that said Naomi, excuse me, Boaz was a man of great wealth. So he had the resources to do it. He could do it. And the third requirement, he had to have the resolve to do it. He had to want to do it. Now, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 taught that the kinsman redeemer had to be willing to do it. He, he couldn't be forced to do it, but had to be willing to do it. And we know that he fulfilled that requirement uh, because he wanted to. In chapter three, verse 11, Boaz said, I want to do this for you. And I want to do this for your family. So, you see the requirements of what it took for him to do it. And Boaz did this. But then I want you to see this, this beautiful result, the results of redemption. Notice what happens. Now go back to verse 11, chapter four. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who's coming to your house like Rachel and Leah the two who built the house of Israel and may you prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. A couple of results here. First of all, Ruth is promoted. You notice they don't call her the Moabitess anymore or the lady from Moab. They call her the woman in verse 11. God redeemed Ruth's life from being a poor, lonely widow into one of the human ancestors of Jesus. Because you'll see as you read on that she is the grandmother of or she gave, the, she, she gave birth to Obed, who is the grandfather of King David. So he's, she's King David's great-grandmother. And of course, we know that through the Davidic line, Jesus was born. A Moabitess, Moab, a pagan. Now that's what I call a promotion. But that's what God does for you and me. He promotes us. When, when the people gathered, they began to rejoice. In fact, you don't hear them calling her the Moabitess. They, they say the woman, and they compare her to Leah and Rachel, which are the wives of Jacob, who had those 12 sons who became the tribes of, of Israel. They, they've elevated her standing, and that's the same thing that Jesus does for you and me. We go from being a sinner to a saint. We go from being an outcast to a child of God. That's what redemption does. That is a beautiful picture. We get a promotion. In fact, 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father's bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Then I want you to notice what happens to Boaz. He is praised. The people elevate Ruth because they're rejoicing in what Boaz has done. They praise him for what he's done. He's done a wonderful thing, and people are, are, are praising him for it. Well, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, paid the ultimate price for our redemption, and because of that, he is worthy of our praise. In fact, God has exalted him. Philippians 2, 9 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and those under the earth. So you see this beautiful picture of what Boaz has done for Ruth and ultimately Naomi. Now let's compare that as I close to Jesus who is our righteous kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a picture of our redeemer. Of all the names that the Bible gives Jesus, I think redeemer is one of the most precious names. When we use the word Lord, we're referring to Jesus Christ as master over sin and death. And when we use the word Savior, we're recalling that he saved us from our sin. But when we use the word Redeemer, we're focusing on the high price that Jesus paid for you and me on the cross. You see, Redeemer is the name of Christ on the cross. There are three Greek words for redemption. And I want you to get this. I didn't write it down for you. And you don't have to remember all the Greek words, but it's a beautiful picture and I want you to see it. The first word for redemption in the, in the Greek is agorazo. Now, agora was the word for marketplace. In fact, you didn't say I'm going to the store, I'm going to the agora. <laughs> because that's where all the shops, that's where the marketplace was. The center of the city was the Agora. Well, Agorazo means to buy something, to go in and buy something. Purchase. It was also used to purchase a slave that was on the auction block. The next word is X. Agorazo. X means out of, and when you add it to agorazo, it means to go into the slave market, pay the price, and to take somebody off the slave market and completely out of the area. And the third word is the word lutron, L-U-T-R-O-N, which means to set free or deliver somebody from captivity. So you've got a Agorazo, which means to purchase, ex agorazo, which means to purchase and remove from the slave market, and lutron, which means having purchased and removed, you've set them free. And all three of those words talk about our redemption in the New Testament. Amen. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him we have redemption through the Baptist church. Just checking, just checking. Through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, in order to qualify as a goel, only Jesus qualifies. In fact, let's look at that quickly. First of all, Jesus is kin through his incarnation. God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and truth. So what did God do in order to be able to pay the price for us? He had to become one of us in order to be kin to us. We're, we're entering to that season of the year. We're about to enter to that season of the year when we focus on him becoming flesh. Christmas, in case you hadn't figured it out yet. <laughs> he took on flesh. Philippians 2, 5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of Men, in order to qualify as a goel, he had to be a close relative. And so God took care of that problem by sending Jesus to become flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh. I want to read it to you out of a paraphrase because I like the way this is written. The word, of, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes and one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. But Jesus became flesh so that he could pay the price for us. The wages of sin is death. And if somebody's going to redeem us or to pay the price of sin, they had to be flesh. And he was born of a virgin, tempted in all points as we have been tempted, yet without sin. And when he went to the cross, God put our sin on him. He's the only one. Salvation is through Jesus. It's not through the church. It's through Jesus. The second thing he has the power to redeem. He had the resources. There's no recession in heaven. But he lived a sinless life. But Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus saves us to the uttermost. Ephesians 3.20, he can do exceedingly abundantly all more than we ask or think. A goel had to have the resources or the power Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, we like those rags to riches story. But this is a riches to rags to riches story. He left the riches to become basically a homeless, poor man. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet he came to redeem us. Folks, don't look to the government to redeem you. Don't look to your job to redeem you. It doesn't have the power. Don't look to your church to redeem you. 
Only Jesus has the power to redeem you. Only him. Now, your church ought to be telling you about Jesus, but if you think for a moment that you, you join a certain church that you're automatically in, you need to look again. The church doesn't have the power to redeem you. Only Jesus does. The third thing is he was willing to redeem. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, a relative, a kinsman, redeemer, a person, a goel could have lots of money, but he might not be willing to do it. We saw that here. Jesus came for one reason, to show us the love of the Father and to redeem us. He didn't come to heal the sick. Now, he does heal. But if he came just to heal the sick, he'd have built a hospital. He didn't come just to teach. He is a teacher. But if he'd been come just to teach, he'd have built a school. But he came to pay the ransom price for our salvation, and he was willingly... He was willing to give up his life and he laid it down willingly. They didn't take his life from him. The last thing is he had to pay the full price. The price of our redemption is so high. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. One of the greatest hymn writers was a man by the name of Philip P. Bliss. Around Christmas time in 1876, Philip Bliss and his wife were on the way to join D.L. Moody in an evangelistic crusade and they were killed in a train wreck. And among the personal effects of bliss were a set of words entitled, My Redeemer. Later, they were set to music and have become one of the church's most cherished hymns. I would dare say you will recognize it. Now listen carefully to the message of these words. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save. In his boundless love and mercy, he the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear redeemer, his triumph power I'll tell how the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. Sing, O oh sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Boaz did not force himself upon Ruth. What if Ruth didn't want him? He waited until Ruth asked him to be 
the kinsman redeemer. And there are people listening, watching online, will hear this on television, hearing my voice today, and you need to understand that you can be redeemed and the Lord's been waiting to redeem you for a long time. But you have to ask. He will not force himself on you. You don't get it by osmosis, by sitting in church long enough that you just absorb him. You don't do it that way. You have to ask God to forgive you. Believing that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, that he lived a sinless life and that he went to the cross willingly, laid down his life and God placed on him the penalty of our sin and his sinless blood atoned for our sin. And when we are married to him, I guess it's the right way, you make a commitment of your life to him. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You know what I'm talking about. When you get married, you make a commitment of your life to the person you're married. Well, you make a commitment. That's why Jesus is coming for his bride, the church. Because we've made a commitment of our life to him. When you ask him to be your savior and your redeemer, he says yes. And so if you don't know Jesus today, if you're watching online, hit that connect button. Hit that I need prayer button. Let somebody help you know how you can receive Christ and, and you can receive him even now. It's so simple and yet so profound. I don't understand how people can reject redemption when it's already been paid for. You get all of these coupons in the mail that have free stuff. Free stuff. And yet, salvation that takes you into eternity with God is offered freely. You have to receive it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those today who need Jesus as their Savior. Right now, Lord, some of them have been watching online. Some of them know they need to ask. So, Lord, we come asking you to forgive us of our sin and asking Jesus to come into our life. I pray that people would be saved and redeemed even now. And for those of us who have been saved a long time, we're so grateful, God, that our Redeemer lives. He's still alive, still saving, waiting to come back for us. I pray for those people that need a church. If this is the place you send them here, I pray for those that need to be obedient and to make the first step that shows their faith in Jesus, and that's by being baptized. If you make a commitment today, you can indicate that on that little card that's on the, in the seat pocket in front of you. 
My decision today, I want to know more about following Jesus or I want to join Southcrest or whatever. And you can indicate that and drop it in the communication card boxes as you leave and, and we'll call you on the telephone and talk with you. Some of us will be standing around here at the front after we're done and be glad to visit with you. If you're watching online, if you hit that connect button and, and somebody will help you even now receive Christ as your Savior. You know, God's still working in the midst of all of this COVID stuff. We've had close to 70 people join Southcrest during the time that this all started and we've had to quit doing things like we were doing them for a while. A lot of people have been saved. And so, Lord, I lift up these today who make commitments to you. Pray that you'll draw them closer. And God, thank you for being our Redeemer. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for paying the high cost. Thank you for becoming one of us. We love you, Lord, and thank you for our salvation. And I lift up those today who may have made commitments to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.